Hello, you're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan here as always with David Scott. It's great to be back on the show. I'm not sure about Sydney though. Yeah, um, I tell you what, uh, it's it's cold, uh, wet, um, property prices are falling um, a whole lot. Look, we're, we've got a really big in-depth uh, look at the property market uh, this week. Um, it is, you know, the talk of the town um, and here to talk through it, um, all, all of it with us is uh, one of the people who is genuinely um, the best sources of information on uh, what's happening in the Australian uh, property market. It's the head of uh, research at uh, CoreLogic, which is uh, the agency that does all the market-facing data on week-to-week property prices uh, uh, across the country in all sorts of locations. Cameron Kuchar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. Uh, Now, look, um, Cameron, uh, been a very interesting uh, last 12 months, I imagine, for you. Did you did you see this starting to roll over at some point? Uh, when was the point where you started thinking, okay, this is this is going to get real, prices are really going to start falling? Probably a, a little bit after Sydney started falling. So late last year when we started to see the auction clearance rates coming off and we started to see the number of properties rising relative to, to recent years, I think that's when we really started to think that, okay, the macro prudential policies in place are now having an impact, plus the stretched affordability, and the market's going to roll over from here. Right. Um, but uh, in the last few months, it's been uh, gathering pace a little bit. It, it certainly has. I mean, if you look uh, at Sydney, for example, values uh, to the end of last month were down 4.2% over the year. And if if you compare that to a year ago, values were up 17% uh, 12 months ago. So it's been a pretty dramatic and, and rapid slowdown in the market. Melbourne, probably not quite to the same magnitude, but a year ago, values were up 13%. They're up 2.2% over the last 12 months. So if anything, probably a little bit surprised at how quickly things have cooled in the market over the last 12 months. Okay, so um, now you're uh, more familiar than most. I would say you could count on one hand uh, the number of people, uh, taking away your thumb, you could count on one hand the number of people who, who know the, um, the data in the property market like yourself. Um, so w- what are the key trends from your perspective? Well, the key trends are we've seen a a pullback in investor lending, um, and obviously it's much harder to get credit, particularly for investors, higher interest rates. In Sydney, for example, if you strip out the refinancing segment of lending, at their peak, investors were about 68% of the market here in Sydney, which is just crazy to, to think. They've pulled back to around 50%, but even at this point in the market, 50% seems like an awful lot of investment. Uh, Melbourne at its peak was about 56% of the market was investors. It's down to about 42%, still very much overweight compared to their longer term averages. Some of the other things that are are really impacting the market is, uh, I think the, the big one is the number of properties actually listed for sale. And in Sydney at the moment, total listings are the highest they've been at this time of year since 2012. And 2012 was a a period where values were falling. So we're seeing a lot more stock on the market. We're seeing credit much harder to to access, uh, fewer buyers, stretched affordability. and, And ultimately, that's leading to these declines that we're seeing in the market. So look, I think probably most people um, take a pretty sensible view on this that, you know, the market got way ahead of, um, you know, thanks to all the stimulus and and demand that was in there, um, prices grew very rapidly and and this is a probably pretty natural and um, perhaps overdue um, uh, cooling uh, in in prices, right? So even if you bought three or four years ago, you're significantly uh, well ahead, particularly in Sydney. 
you know, you're doing okay. Um, the value of your of your, um, of your property is still higher, and particularly if you're an investor, um, you you've still got some capital gain in there. Okay, so all good. Um, so some moderation. Um, however, the question everybody asks is. Uh, where is this going? Now, every, every man and his dog has got a view on this, um, but uh, where do you think this all ends up? Pulling out my crystal ball, I think it, it, it's a hard one to predict because if we look at the recent downturns in the housing market, they've generally been fairly short, uh, you know, probably 12 to 24 months, and, and that's across most capital cities. Perth, a bit of an exception at the moment, Darwin. But it's been a long time since there's been a, a significant correction in the in the Sydney and Melbourne housing markets. I mean, the deepest downturns we've seen over the last sort of 35 years is about 10, 11%. My view is that we'll probably see values in, in Sydney fall by 10, maybe 15%. But I do think that for the next few years, there's going to be very little growth uh, in the market. Until we start getting some wage increases, we're already seeing that migration is is moving away from New South Wales to other parts of the country. Uh, so I, I think that the outlook over the immediate term is not particularly strong in Sydney. Uh, Melbourne, Kind of similar. Uh, population growth is obviously much stronger at the moment in in Victoria. Uh, prices are a lot cheaper in Melbourne than they are in Sydney, and and the difference in wages is not as significant as it used to be. So I think for people that are, are looking for, I'm going to go to Sydney or Melbourne for a job. I think Melbourne remains a little bit more attractive because you've still got a better opportunity to buy a property uh, and your wages aren't all that much different. Uh, but I still think we could see values fall. You know potentially to 10% uh, in, in Melbourne. And then again, I think it's going to be a few years till we start seeing values rising again in either city. So you did you mentioned there um, some of the um, population moves and uh, you have this excellent Twitter account. If anybody uh, um, is in, remotely interested in uh, property prices uh, uh, demographics, which uh, basically is uh, almost everybody in Australia, um, you should be following Cameron on on Twitter. Um, uh, it's CM Kusher uh, is his is his handle um, and great stuff on there every day. Fascinating and, and data and research that you do, but you um, just recently you were um, sharing some stats on on the interstate population moves uh, and some fascinating numbers in there because people you know I initially thought that this whole thing that there would be some kind of flight from New South Wales because of the heat in the property mer- uh, in the property market was a kind of spurious argument and something that people wanted to be true um, uh, but uh, it looks like it potentially is now right it, it certainly does and I think us included, we've been saying, you know, Brisbane's probably looking like a, a decent bet for the last few years and it hasn't really come to fruition. And I think the thing that's been missing really is the unemployment rate's been quite high, job creation in Queensland hasn't been that strong and the interstate migration had never really picked up. But we're certainly seeing now that a lot more people are leaving New South Wales and their destination of choice is is generally Queensland. We're also finding for Queensland that there's a lot more Victorians moving to Queensland. Uh, even people from South Australia, we're seeing more South Australians moving to Queensland as well. So probably a combination of much lower property prices, uh, slightly better economic conditions, maybe economic conditions that can improve a little bit more. I think also... You know, just even comparing what you get in Sydney or Melbourne compared to what you get in a similar location in, in southeast Queensland, um, you know, it's like chalk and cheese. And, and I think businesses are also becoming more accepting of people working remotely. So, 
you know, it's only a plane flight down on a Monday morning to Sydney, work in the office in Sydney two or three days a week and then go back up to Queensland and, and work from home two days a week. And I think that's becoming a little bit more prevalent. So people increasingly can choose where they want to live. Uh, the other area that's doing quite well, it, the growth seems to be largely in southeast Queensland uh, and that seems to be where most people are migrating. The Sunshine Coast is, is doing really well at the moment, particularly up around Noosa. We're seeing really strong growth in that market. And again, I think there's a lot of people that uh, are setting themselves up in Noosa, maybe retirees moving out of Sydney or Melbourne, but also you know, younger families and they move there for the lifestyle. The, the parents might have to commute interstate a couple of days a week, but they're prepared to do that because of the lifestyle and what you get for your money. I'm, I'm glad you said lifestyle because that's one of the things that I've noticed. I hadn't been up in Brisbane for uh, for quite a few years up until uh, earlier this year, and I was taken aback about how much that city has improved. And I won't lie, when I went to Brisbane last, I found it a bit mundane, a bit boring and not really much going on come back you know, a few years later and it's really starting to go and liven up and I'm, I was very impressed. Now, just along the, 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 uh, the river there, watching all the high-rise buildings go up, I, it sounds kind of strange, but I almost got like a, a backdrop. I go to Singapore quite regularly and it reminded me a little bit of Singapore skyline and all that, how it's all starting to go and become like happening and, and lively and there's bars and everything else. So I'm glad you did point that out. And, and obviously, of course, the relative value side of things is in, incredibly important to, you know, no, no real, no price movement over Brisbane property market for uh, for several years, uh, huge gains elsewhere in Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, I can understand why people are saying, well, maybe just go and cash in now and, uh, and go and move for the lifestyle and you know, perhaps better opportunities up in Brisbane. So w- one of the things we're seeing in Brisbane, there are some headlines around um, uh, this week about people selling apartments uh, at very, very steep discounts to what they were bought for off the plan maybe a few years ago. We're talking 25 30%. Um, so what kind of risks does this carry? Oh, there, there's definitely risks there. I mean, if you look at Brisbane over the last decade, um, house values are up about 25%, which is not significant growth, but you look at the unit market, it's actually about 12% lower than it was 10 years ago. So I think what we've seen in Brisbane is this huge amount of new construction following the trends that we've seen in Sydney and Melbourne. But Sydney and Melbourne have had all this additional demand coming from people moving to those cities uh, and obviously the strong e- economy, which which Queensland really hasn't had. So um, we are seeing a, a lot of investors that went to Brisbane because it seemed very cheap compared to Sydney or Melbourne, whereas I think a lot of locals looking at that off-the-plan stock would go, you know what? I can get better value in the second-hand market. So there is a there is a very, very real risk around some of the uh, the brand new developments. We're already seeing quite a lot of the valuations on completion coming in below the contract price, uh, and I think going forward there's still a lot under construction as well. So it's having an impact on the rental market. Um, a lot of people are, are moving into these newer properties because they're better quality, but the developers and the owners are having to offer a lot of incentives in that market to get people to move. Uh, And I think that uh, I still think that there's much better value in that secondhand market. So developers are going to be doing it tough for a while in Brisbane. I guess the one potential saving grace is that uh, migration's picking up into Queensland now and maybe some people from interstate that are moving uh, to the region will start looking at those properties and, and purchasing them. Yeah, so that uh, even if you are selling at a discount, at least you can find a buyer. Uh, yeah, because um, that's, I suppose, the big question, right? Isn't it, it you know, that... Um, it's a, and I suppose it's a question for both of you. So I, I don't, like I m- mentioned earlier, 
There's, I don't think anybody has a problem with this issue of prices coming back a bit in the big cities uh, because they were too high. Um, just affordability had become a social um, and political issue. Um, and uh, so it's fine, prices come back. Um, but uh, I guess a question for both of you is where the risk of some kind of uh, contagion cre- uh, creeps in, where the knock-on effects might be, which is where um, the doomsayers have had their com- this conversation has been going on in certain corners uh, of, of of bars on the internet for uh, for for ten years in Australia now, I suppose. Uh, but uh, what do you think, Dave? H- where do you start to look for further problems than just price declines in Sydney, Melbourne, and a bit of Brisbane? Oh, obviously, you look at various things. The biggest store of wealth for many Australian households is their home. And uh, when that starts going backwards, and we're talking about uh, 40% of uh, Australia's population, give or take a few percent either side, live in Sydney and Melbourne, uh, which means that when you start seeing prices decline for a considerable period of time, uh, that's going to have following effects to things like construction and and new dwellings and everything else. That's employment. Um, but it really has to be, you know, a sharp and sudden plunge, I think, to go and really cause any dramatic uh, drop-off. Uh, the key thing is the employment market. If the employment market stays strong, uh, I think the Australian economy should be able to go and weather uh, any downturn in the housing market, even if it does last years. And I think it will last years when you're talking about Sydney and Melbourne. Uh, but it comes down to, you know, you have to have like a, a very, very steep drop uh, in migration flows, particularly from overseas, and other factors as well, including uh, the, the labor market. When you've got, I uh, know, as long as the labor market is strong, it's okay. If you have a big drop uh, in employment, you have unemployment rise, and obviously you're going to lead to potentially forced selling and whatnot. But that's not what we're seeing at the moment. Cameron, uh, what about for you? Where, where do you look for in, in terms of this being a bigger risk than, um, than you know, just some maybe some investors getting you know lo- losing some money on um, on, on the, the apartment that they that they bought a few uh, years ago. I think it's a lot of what David says, but I think it's also maybe when prices start falling and if it, it the market remains down for a number of years, it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy that you know prices are going to slide. So I put off going and buying my property because I know uh, buying a new property because I know in twelve months it's going to be cheaper. So I guess it, it becomes a, a case of when do people how how far do prices have to fall for people to start jumping back into the market? And that's probably the great unknown. Typically it's been around 10% falls and you see the market rebound generally pretty quickly. But prices are a lot higher now and very different conditions. You know, credit has been loosened over the last 25 years. We're now in a, a situation where, yes, interest rates are still very low, but credit's actually being tightened. So does it remain that kind of 10% fall where people come back into the market or do they sit on the sidelines until values have fallen 20%, uh, 30%? Who knows? I mean, I certainly don't think that that's the base case. Uh, but it's not something that you can completely discount either. What what uh, data do you look at most closely for? Um, so, you know, there's so much data available out there. And obviously, CoreLogic has all of its own uh, fantastic product, which the whole market looks to uh, each week as the sort of benchmark for, um, for what's happening on a week-to-week basis. Um, so what do you look at most closely? Well, I think I think dwelling values and, and what's happening with them is is very important. So we watch that very closely. I think listings uh, are a very important indicator of the market as well, um, particularly at the moment when we're seeing that listings are rising, properties are taking longer to sell, 
Um, but there's a lot of other things. We look very closely at the data that APRA puts out about um, you know loan quality, property exposures of, of the banks. I think uh, that's very important to see what's actually happening with credit, what's happening with interest only, what's happening with uh, the higher LVR lending as well. Uh, and some of the other data that's probably not our proprietary data that we look at. Um, obviously, demographics are, are very important. Retail trade, uh, because New South Wales and Victoria have got a significant boost in retail trade from the strength of the housing market over the last few years. Uh, inflation's always uh, important for us to look at as well. And then the housing finance and the building approvals uh, each month is uh, is probably the biggest stuff that we look at. So just a, a short list of things to, to be um, processing on a, on a week-to-week basis. But um, yeah, putting the picture together, I think, is uh, just such an interesting question. And of course, underlying all of this, I think, is one of the really important questions here too, because if there's one remaining incentive for people to buy at the moment, uh, and this is something we, we talked about briefly before we um, started the show, but um, if you think rates are going to go up and a mortgage is going to get more expensive uh, in the next few years, then maybe that's the sort of one sort of spur that you might have um, to to get into the market now. So, but I think there's been a little bit of a sense recently that this that this question about the direction of rates, um, where there was this kind of accepted view that the next move will be up, slightly started to turn recently, hasn't it? It certainly has. I mean, some of the Reserve Bank's uh, commentary around that has softened a little bit. Now um, they're kind of putting some parameters around what would lead to a a rate hike. I mean, if you look at what's happening, obviously the housing market's cooling and and that's been a big area of focus for the Reserve Bank. I think they'd be quite happy with that, but it could quickly turn and they're not so happy with the the rate that the housing market's falling. Uh, But other factors, I mean, wages aren't growing uh, or they're not growing very much. Inflation is continually below the 2 to 3% uh, band. I think you could quite easily make the argument that we should probably be cutting interest rates. Um, but there's also this discussion about, well, what if something really bad happens and, and we don't have any more interest rate cuts to give? So it, it is a bit of a bind for the Reserve Bank. Uh, personally, I think that interest rates are at least going to be on hold for a very long time. I don't think we're going to see hikes probably until 2020 at the earliest. So, um, uh, David, you, um, I think it was probably two months ago now that you started, uh, shall we say, making some spirited assessments of uh, how, the, how the RBA is handling uh, uh, policy and, and the direction of, of rates. Um, we've recently seen, you know, um, we've had these questions about uh, short-term money market um, pushing up the cost of funding for banks mm-hmm. in the last week. Uh, we've seen three of smaller lenders, but you know, one of them, Bank of Queensland, which is not a particularly small lender, um, raised the uh, raised their uh, variable rate. Um, so the cost of there is a rising interest rate environment in Australia already, um, which could put some extra pressure on this. So um, maybe you can go back to. Um, where you think the RBA is and, and how they're um, how they're managing this, uh, particularly given some of the uh, things that Cameron mentioned, where they've made some changes to the sort of parameters around the debate in the last couple of weeks. Well, the RBA is hoping that things go right. That's my personal view, and I think it's a view of a lot of other people. They're hoping that uh, that wages will start to go and pick up. Or they're hoping that unemployment will go and fall. They're hoping that uh, the, the economic growth will go and be above trend this year and next. Um, look, there's there's some positive signs, but generally there's no real like you no know, month to month and quarter to quarter data. There's been real no progress in uh, in, in achieving those things uh, as yet. 
um, and throwing you know, the likes of what's going on in the property market now. Um, and also, I think their their commentary. I think they've lost a bit of the ability to the message they're trying to go and send. Uh, you know, that all of a sudden they started talking about raising interest rates at one point, you know, at some point in the future, if all these things happen. And then now these caveats are coming on, uh, such as you know, if GDP growth uh, is uh, is above trend and whatnot. And it really, they're, they're in a bind. Um, the, the key thing is, well, when this talk about uh, you know, cutting interest rates, as you mentioned, short-term money market rates have been spiking. And uh, unusually so that uh, it's actually, you know, it started with the US and then it flowed through to our market. But now the US market, short-term money market rates have started to come off a little bit, but ours are still going higher, which then begs the question, even if the RBA was to go and cut the cash rate again, say that property prices accelerate a bit more and you start seeing a, a, a slowdown in household consumption and whatnot, will the banks be in a position to go and pass on any cut? Uh, and I'm very doubtful that's the case at the moment, which makes it even more of a sort of a, a tedious situation that we're in at the moment because there is very little wriggle room and very little they can go and do at this point in time, in my opinion. So it's certainly going to be um, a fascinating uh, a period ahead. Um, I think we'll uh, absolutely be revisiting it, of course, uh, uh, as, we, as we go on. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Uh, our guest on the show this week is one of uh, Australia's foremost property market experts, a uh, guy with uh, access to more data than you can uh, shake a stick at. It's Cameron Kusher, uh, head of research for, for CoreLogic. So, um, Cameron, uh, one of the things that's been uh, really uh, important in this has been uh, the, the mix between um, uh, you know the different geographical pockets, right? So, but I remember back when property uh, prices were rising really, really rapidly. It was talk- we were talking about the outer parts of Sydney, for example. You know where you were getting small houses on on uh, on small plots. Uh, going for very large sums of money. So um, the fibro shack in Bankstown going for, you know, $800,000 or a million bucks kind of thing. That was when it kind of got a little bit, uh, a little bit um, troubling um, because, you know, there is an argument that, you know, when you're in the market for a $3 million house, um, 3.2 or 3. Uh, you know, 3.8 is not going to make all that much of a difference to you. Um, well, particularly at the very, very top end. Um, but... Um, maybe you can talk about how some of those kind of outer suburban areas have been performing recently, because that's where I think a lot of people would look to for uh, patches of concern. It's interesting. Um, if we look at Sydney again f- as an example, we're finding that values are, are falling across the board, um, generally speaking, but the lower end of the market at the moment is holding up much better. Um, if we actually look by regions, you can find the Central Coast, and I know a lot of Sydney siders don't consider the Central Coast to be part of Sydney, uh, but values are still rising there. And then the outer southwest, we're still seeing values increase. The rate of increase is, is very slow, though. So that market's still pushing up, and I, I think that's largely being driven by these incentives uh, for first home buyers. If we look in Melbourne, for example, it's a similar thing. The outer suburbs are, are, are still holding up at the moment, uh, Mornington Peninsula is actually the strongest performing region of, of Melbourne. And again, there's a lot of incentives for first home buyers at the moment. The, the question now, though, is as you say, uh, people are paying quite astronomical prices for a lot of that new housing stock. Once those first home buyer incentives uh, are kind of nullified over the over the next uh, period as, as values continue to rise. And, and also I think um, as the market continues to fall, 
I think people are going to start looking at the prices that were paid out in some of these areas and just kind of scratching their heads saying, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, what what people have paid for these properties. And I think if we look back to the downturn in sort of 2004 to 2008, it was a lot of out of Western Sydney where we actually saw really big falls in, uh, in values and we saw mortgage delinquency rates uh, increase as well. So I would think, again, that that's a potential area of concern, particularly at the moment because first home buyers are being attracted into a falling market. So straight away they're buying and day dot, they're in negative equity out there in the market. Now, so far it's not a huge amount of negative equity, um, but you know, if the unemployment rate starts nudging higher, if, if economic conditions deteriorate a little bit, they're the sort of people that might find themselves in a bit of trouble. I, I yeah, completely agree. Though they're, they're obviously new purchases as well. New 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 people have gone and taken out loans. Are obviously going to be taking on quite a substantial mortgage debt in most instances. Uh, mortgage rates, even if the RBA was to cut rates, are probably not going to go much further. Probably the next move will be higher in mortgage rates. Um, so you throw in that, that combination, then obviously you can see that the risk is there. Like, you know, you're only as uh, strong as your weakest link. And that's going to be, unfortunately, a lot of those first-time buyers who have been attracted by these, uh, these uh, incentives, you know, the stamp duty discounts and whatnot, brought forward more demand into that more affordable part of the market. But it's also making it vulnerable if there was to be some sort of interest rate shock or an economic shock, because that's probably where you'd see it first and foremost uh, if there was to be like a sharp downturn. So from the uh, multi-million dollar or tens of millions of dollars uh, markets that are out there in, uh, in, um, in say, Western Sydney and the, on the, the central coast, um, I want to go out to the biggest and most liquid uh, market in the world, if I can, very quickly, which is um, for currencies. And Dave, uh, Australian dollar, I think I looked at it this morning at a two-year, at the slowest point in two years, down below 74 cents. Mm-hmm. Um, it has this potential, and somebody said to me once many years ago, if you're ever wondering what the mood is in the global economy, just look at the Aussie, um, and uh, you'll get a pretty good picture, um, because when risk is on, the Aussie's high, and uh, when people are feeling a bit glum about things, um, it tends to fall. Um, so it's, been some pretty, it's been a pretty steady march downwards. Um, obviously, this has implications for inflation here in Australia. Um, maybe you can talk about what you see is happening there. Well, first of all, we talked about the IBM before RBA's message is that uh, you know whilst rates they think will go up in the future that's going to be a very long time it appears at this stage uh, so divergent monetary policy settings between uh, the RBA and the US Fed is a, is a big factor um, also if you uh, want to go and see why the Aussies particularly been weak in uh, the last month or so go check out what's been happening with the Chinese UN uh, China's currency and have a look what's been going on with Chinese stock and then, of course, going to tie that back to China being Australia's major uh, export destination. Uh, so obviously, people are a bit concerned about what's going on with these trade frictions. I will still call them frictions until we actually see widespread tariffs going to get introduced. Uh, but obviously, that is going to play on a lot of investors' mind and, and traders, obviously, you know, selling, uh, selling first and they'll wait to go and see what happens. Uh, and that will probably determine what will go and happen in the end with the Aussie dollar in the next, uh, next little bit, how this trade uh, dispute resolves itself. Uh, people are getting quite short. Uh, a lot of the speculators in the CFTC data that's come out recently, uh, they're getting quite short, not extreme, but enough, uh, which means that if something was to suddenly go and eventuate for the positive uh, and the, the art of the deal, Trump delivers uh, something along those lines, then it could well be that you'll see quite a, a sharp short covering roll in the Aussie. But uh, for the time being, whilst these trade frictions are around, the Aussie dollar is going to struggle. 
Yeah, so below below four um, seventy four cents. Uh, at what point does it start to? What level does it start to change the picture for the RBA? I mean, we're we talking sixty eight. Does it need to be lower? Um, you know, uh, before we start to get some real um, questions around importing inflation because of the goods we have to import, etc. It will help, but uh, at the margin, you know, you've got to look at the demand picture as well. Uh, so tradable inflation is around about 40% of the CPI basket. It will go and impact that. It will go and help to, uh, to go and boost that tradable inflation that comes through. Um, but the pass-on effect, uh, if the consumer is not particularly strong, uh, it could well result in weakening demand. So uh, whilst it would, in some instances, go and help boost the headline CPA, CPI rate, I'm not sure it would actually go and have too much of a positive impact. Uh, and as I said, you know, if the Aussie dollar wants to go and spring back higher again, then of course, you know, that will be a, a headwind for, uh, for tradable inflation. So um, I wouldn't be getting too excited. You know, to go and talk about like uh, – a tradable inflation spike that goes and leads the RBA to go and, and start hiking rates more aggressively than what the current market forecasts are. You're going to talk about, you know, at least you know, 10 cents. And also in trade weighted terms, it's got to be quite a substantial decline, not just against the US dollar. So that we're a long way from that, obviously. Um, I do think as part of the backdrop to that, you mentioned Chinese stocks. It's been one of the quiet stories of, of this year uh, on global financial markets. Um, the I think the Shanghai Composite entered a bear market very briefly this week, down 20% from the highs, right? It did enter a bear market, but some might argue that it's a bear market within a bear market because anyone who was looking back in 2015 would know that yeah. the Chinese stock market has fallen quite a, quite a substantial way since then. But yeah, it just uh, ticked over a uh, 20% decline from late, uh, late January, which was also a period when uh, a lot of uh, you know, this volatility in financial markets started. So it's worthwhile keeping an eye on Chinese stocks because they do give you, whilst obviously there's, there's a bit of coercion from government sources and the plunge protection team that the people going to laugh about and everything else to go and coerce markets to go and, uh, and Chinese markets to go and find a bid. Uh, it does go and provide some sort of a mindset as to how things are going in China and what Chinese people are actually thinking about what's going on because they're the ones who are ultimately you know, making these investment decisions. Um, so it's been falling quite substantially and hence that's why you know, you've seen quite a bit of risk aversion and nerves uh, in other markets including in Australia. Now, uh, Cameron, you watch this uh, obviously uh, on a uh, weekly basis, on a high-frequency basis, the sort of relationship between the property market um, uh, demand. There's also the the longer-term story of Chinese investment uh, into Australia. Um, so, uh, and the global picture at the moment, there's you know huge amount of uncertainty um, uh, around you know particularly with this trade frictions, as, uh, as David likes to call them. Um, I, I, I do think it's, uh, we're, we're, we're staring down a, like a honest-to-goodness uh, fair income trade war. We'll find out in early July. July 7, I think, is when the, uh, the, the, the first round of big tariffs get introduced by uh, the US on Chinese imports, so we'll find out then. Yeah, and there's another, they're looking at the, the, the extra ones then to follow up from there. So, um, yeah, so if there's brinkmanship going on, uh, we'll know. Um, but um, so to, to your mind, um, Cameron, what's the relationship between that sort of global uh, picture uh, where there's this kind of turbulence and then what we see in terms of, say, investor confidence, investor demand, a buyer demand, you know, um, owner-occupier demand uh, in the Australian market? I think it feeds into it. I mean, we have seen a, a big pullback in Chinese buying in Australia over the last 12 months. Um, but I think 
you know, Australia's always talked about as a bit of a safe haven for, for Chinese. So um, if they can get their money out of China, maybe the trade wars look for Chinese to come and bring some more money uh, back to Australia. Um, I think, obviously, as David was talking about, though, we look at the international um, markets and, and have a look at how funding costs are going up here in Australia. I think we've kind of got to this mindset in Australia now that, you know, low interest rates are good and high interest rates are bad. So I think if we start seeing funding costs uh, go up and that gets passed on to the end user and people have to start paying more on their mortgage, I think that that can become a negative for the housing market as well because we do have this mindset that it's only good when interest rates are low. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, we never talked about interest rate announcements on the news. Now it's flashed up every single week, every single month rather, when we when the RBA meets. So um, I think it, it, potentially we might see some more demand from offshore, but if funding costs go up and mortgages become more expensive, then it's a, it's a negative for, for local buyers. Yeah, and also there's the impact uh, more broadly on you know things like bank margins. Um, I saw some really interesting uh, numbers, I think from Shane Oliver during the week, where he reckons that the bank bill swap rate, um, which is that short-term money uh, market uh, number uh, for those 30, 60, 90-day uh, bills, that that's uh, only accounts for about 0.1% of um, the funding costs for the banks, or sorry, 0.1 of a percentage point um, of the funding costs for the banks. So, so if they need of the majors, uh, so if they needed to pass it on, it would be it would be a 10% basis point uh, rise. So, um, if they wanted to defend that margin, or if they wanted to just suck it up and maybe find some efficiencies elsewhere in the bank, which they can probably do, given that uh, there's all these programs of layoffs, uh, you know, and automation, etc., going on, right? So, so I think that's absorbable for the banks. But I think you know, there's been all this extra competition that's come in with these smaller lenders, um, where they may not have that ability to um, to contain those price rises for their um, for their, their 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 funding costs. So they do they've no Option, but to pass it on to, um, put to pass it on to consumers and policy and the policy framework has steered people towards a lot of those uh, smaller lenders in uh, in over recent years because they've just had you know um, smaller operating bases than the banks and they can be more competitive on on price and certain things and everything. So it's going to be cer- certainly very interesting. We've never been in this situation before, um, but uh, I do I take your point. I think it's re- going to be certainly very interesting getting into a. P- uh, a question of you know whether wow when if the conversation really does turn to hey interest rates are going up uh, because we haven't seen that in Australia for such a long time um, then uh, how that might affect uh, you know broader confidence and interest in uh, in buying homes hey oh definitely and I think I was actually chatting with someone at a major bank recently and they said if our funding costs were to go up in the face of a Royal Commission at the moment, it's probably a little bit difficult for us to pass that cost onto the consumer, but certainly the smaller banks aren't really at this stage in the crosshairs of of the Royal Commission. So I think, as you say, the, the smaller banks are probably the ones where you start seeing mortgage rates going up. And I guess it, it then becomes, well, do you want to go back to the big, bad, big four bank or do you want to stay with the uh, the smaller lender and, and then people are going to have to start making some decisions with their mortgages? Keep an eye on the, um, the RBA monetary policy minutes that come out for uh, for the next meeting in July, so around about three or so weeks' time, because um, they've been talking down this uh, this funding cost squeeze, the banks, and saying there's not been much evidence in the mortgage market. If they become a little bit more concerned about that, 
I think that may go and give a green light for the, some of the larger lenders, despite the Royal Commission maybe go and say, well, the RBA saying it, maybe we should go and no, no, take a bit of extra margin ourselves. So I still think there's a risk that the, the majors could do it, even though the Royal Commission is obviously on at the moment and the potential ramifications that could come no, no, from an outer cycle rate increase uh, during this, this period. So I have to say, uh, one of the, um, like I said, I think I started off the show by saying that uh, the, what's happening in the property market is on the lips of every single person in Australia at the moment. But the other thing that's been on everybody's lips for the last uh, few weeks, certainly mine, I um, have been looking forward to uh, having this chat for uh, for quite some time, but it's about the sport. Um, can we start with the rugby, maybe? Do we have to? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not the soccerers either. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so, um, look, I was at the game last Saturday. Um, I think uh, re- uh, refereeing decisions aside, uh, massive game, uh, very high-quality rugby. Um, thankfully, you know, because I think we've seen the last few years, you often see some fairly uh, average-looking tests where there's kind of scrappy play and, uh, you know, it's not much of a spectacle. Uh, but this was the full show. Um, you know, lots of uh, big contests up front and um, some good running rugby as well. Um, so it was the whole package. And then, you know, it all came down to the last five minutes. An amazing try from Australia um, to set up this, you know, the the, the finale. Um, and uh, as uh, the rugby gods would, ha- would have it, the, the result went the right way and Ireland won the series. Um, so which makes things, I think, very exciting. Like, I think the Australians can take an awful lot out of that. Uh, there's a lot of confidence, I think, for them. Uh, I think there was one stat that I saw, which is, you know, that both teams scored 55 points each over the series. Australia scored more tries. um we'll just go back to the result of the test series and who (laughs) who holds the cup um but look it it was fantastic and there were some great things out of the series as well i don't know if you saw what david pocock posted um uh, the day after the game which was a photo of him um with the irish uh uh, halfback connor murray and uh, with you know Pocock wearing his Irish jersey and Murray wearing the Wallabies jersey in the sheds after the game, uh, and uh, he posted with it um, a photo from many many years ago when he was on an Australian schoolboys uh, tour, and it just so happened that his the house he got allocated to stay with was the Murrays, <laughs> uh, and there's a photo of them uh, together from all those years ago, uh, and just great, and I, I just it's one of the great sort of heartwarming things about the game, you know, for all of the ten and the stakes that are involved and, you know, everybody's talking about the future of the game, the reputation, all that kind of stuff. Um, people love going to these games. They, you know, the fans love the sport. Um, the, you know, record crowd at, uh, at uh, Allianz uh, Stadium the other night, you know. Uh, and I think um, good upbeat stuff for the future, future of the game. And I, like, like I said, the, the Wallabies have, I think, plenty, to, plenty positive to, uh, to take out of it. Certainly a lot more positive than the last few years. I mean, as a supporter of the Wallabies, it was still a bit frustrating. And I've been a rugby fan for years. It's still frustrating that, you know, more points come from penalties than they do from tries and things like this. But it was a great series. And I I think that Ireland thoroughly deserved the win, particularly in that last game. Ireland just seemed to be able to get over the advantage line where it was frustrating a lot of the time watching the Aussies get caught five, ten metres behind the advantage line and just not having that punch. But as you say, I think we can take a lot out of the series. Uh, David Pocock being back was, was obviously great. Maybe not a, a popular dis, uh, opinion down here in Sydney, but uh, I think even when Hooper went off, I, I actually thought that the back row functioned a lot better for, for the Aussies. Um, but, yeah, I think there's some positives there and we, we're heading in the right direction at least. 
Yes, uh, congratulations, Paul, on the island's victory. And Ireland definitely did to go and deserve the, uh, the, the series win. Uh, it was a great series to go and watch as a spectator. Um, and Ireland deserves to be number two in the world just purely on their defence alone, which Australia plays a lateral kind of game, not a positional kind of game. I think that showed up in the end. Ireland took their chances with the penalties as well uh, and had opportunities to go and kick away, and that really sort of sealed the deal. Uh, my biggest frustration, I have to go and say this, is just the uh, is the standard of uh, international refereeing uh, in in international rugby games in particular, particularly when you have uh, Northern Hemisphere refs come down to, uh, to the Southern Hemisphere. I just found that in particular, whilst there's a few dubious calls and you, I might be a one-eyed Wallaby supporter and whatnot, the TMO in these games is becoming far too involved and is disrupting the game, uh, slowing down into like super slow-mo, Anything looks, you know, vicious and you no know, meaningful uh, when you do it in super slow motion. But uh, I just wonder how many of these people who sit in those boxes uh, and make these decisions have actually played the game and realised how quick it is. Uh, a couple of those yellow cards that were given, on, on particularly on the, the third test, were just utterly ridiculous. Yeah, well, you get these things where you know nobody has seen anything. The spectators, the uh, the linesman, the um, the referee, and then you get the next stoppage, and it might be you know five minutes later, and it'll be um, excuse me, I just need to go back uh, to 17 minutes ago in the game and look at an incident if you don't mind, and then we have a you know four minute stoppage, and then the next thing is somebody's getting shown a yellow, and um, the, like the first half uh, of the game on Saturday, kickoff was at 8:05, and the first half finished just after nine o'clock. With all the stoppages, the carry on, the you know, um, I mean, sure, you get your, get your money's worth if you, if what you want to be is what you want to see is look time at the ground, uh, fantastic. But um, uh, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's great for the game, and I think this whole thing of the whole thing of the technology and refereeing. Uh, I always think back to a few years ago when we when everybody was saying, well, let's get more technology involved, and now we're in there going, well. Maybe we don't need this level of technology, but I do think the issue of TMOs rewinding to some incident that nobody saw uh, is probably taking it a bit too far. The game, the game was very rapid and very quick, and both teams were tiring. But then you have these situations where you're waiting around for five minutes for a decision, and it's just you lose all know. the momentum out of the game when they're, when they're coming back and reviewing things that happened five minutes ago. It, I can I I I don't have a problem with using the technology, but you don't need to have fifty looks at it. You know, make two or three looks at it. And make a quick decision, and that's all you really need. Yeah. Um, other um, big uh, events, obviously, um, the Mighty Blues um, uh, in the Origin. Dave, finally. Yeah, it's nice for New South Wales supporter to actually have a win. I know we had one a couple of years back, but uh, it was nice to go and get a win. I think the uh, the Blues are a bit lucky on uh, on on Sunday night. They um, they didn't play anywhere near as well as what they played in the uh, the first game, but. The key difference, I think, is that this is changing mentality is where Queensland used to be always that team would dig deep and just find that last little extra couple of percent to go and, uh, and win games. Uh, when the Blues were reduced down to, uh, to 12 men for that last 10 minutes or so, uh, they really dug deep into some big players. And it was very pleasing to go and see that. And, uh, and I think that uh, no, Game 3 will be a nice open affair up at, uh, at Suncorp, so I'm looking forward to see whether we can go and uh, do the clean sweep. Little known fact, I was actually born in Sydney, so I state of origin, I actually go for New South Wales. Good man. It's, it's been horrible for me for the last 11 years, up in, 12 years up in Queensland, but I, I agree. I think New South Wales were lucky to get away with that one. I think a, a lot of the players on the Queensland side of the board, board were actually uh, a bit better than some of the New South Wales players, but um, you know, it was a great result and I'm smiling. 
Yeah, yeah. You're in that lucky situation, a bit like me when Ireland and uh, Australia play in the rugby or in any sport. Uh, you can kind of say, you know, depending on the company, you can sort of, you know, well, actually one nice thing uh, somebody said to me on the weekend was that uh, I was uh, an Australian trapped in an Irishman's body. Um, so maybe you're a Queenslander tra uh, trapped in a New South Welshman's uh, body. Mate. Sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and just very quickly, the um, the World Cup um, uh what a fantastic event it's been, um, you know. Uh, Except for the VAR. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, um, like, I, it's just been great to see this year, you know, to, re, despite the fact that the games are on, on at all hours of the night, uh, just the level of interest and that everybody's talking about it every day. Uh, it's just been great, you know. Um, soccer has really, really built up some incredible momentum uh, in this country, hasn't it, over the past decade? It certainly has, and uh, I think the, the challenge now is A-League seems to be falling off a little bit mm. and, so, and it needs to really take that momentum and, and continue to grow. But everyone got their wish. Tim Cahill got on last night. Um, we still didn't win. Uh, probably the last we'll see of him uh, at 38 years of age, but I think there'll be a bit of a rebuilding period now for the Socceroos, and um, hopefully we can uh, we can go a little bit further next World Cup. Definitely. Uh Obviously, there's been much, uh, much discussion about uh, the inability for the Socceroos to score in open play. And I thought uh, defensively, they were very well manned. And uh, you could see that was uh, Bert van Marwijk's influence on the other uh, team. And uh, much more watertight at the back than maybe under the uh, Poskokoglu uh, era. Um, I think we're going to struggle. There will be the odd exception, like Daniel Alzani is obviously going to be a superstar in the future. But I look, at, um, I look at our striking stocks and I go and think, why, why can we not go and find people who can go and like, just put the ball in the back of the net? And then all I have to do is go and look at the, uh, the newspapers uh, or the TV on the weekend and go and watch AFL, uh, watch rugby league. These are sports that are not readily played in a lot of other places around the world. And you can imagine some of those, you know, the forward lines in AFL in particular, uh, how skillful they are, both like you no know, hand hand eye coordination and like you no know, off the boot ball uh, control. And, yeah. and, and, you, and you and you look at that, and I suspect that if we didn't have AFL in this country, and that's definitely not going to change, where AFL's here to stay and is only growing, um, I think we may have like a, a better solution. But maybe that's something that the uh, that the soccer authorities here, Football Australia, may want to go and see whether. There are some young talent coming through the AFL ranks who potentially could go and make a switch to another code because I think that's something where uh, just the skill levels that are involved to AFL, I think if you transfer that across to soccer, uh, you'd have very, very good players. Well, that's the thing. I mean, surely, um, just sheer mathematics, um, if there are you know a whole bunch of guys out there who are okay or average um, uh, forwards in, in for AFL, but they might be devastatingly effective strikers uh, just because of their skill set or whatever, and it's just the code that they're that they're currently in. Let's give it a crack. Yeah, uh, you've been listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Um, our guest has been Cameron Kusher. Cameron, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Been here as always with David Scott. Been a great chat. I really enjoyed it. The show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au or on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. We're also all on Twitter individually. Cameron Kusher, David Scott, and myself, Paul Colgan. You can find the show on iTunes, under Devils and Details, or on your preferred podcasting platform of choice. We will catch you next time. <laughs> <laughs>